Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Professor Wu Kyung An, the author of Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better. Dr. An is the John Hay Whitney Professor of Psychology at Yale University. Her main area of research interest is higher level reasoning processes. In particular, the study of how people learn and represent concepts and causal relations and how causal explanations shape our thinking processes. In the conversation, Professor Ahn and I discuss why cognitive psychology can make the world a better place, the allure of fluency and why it matters, the difference between rumination and contemplation, the reason that why questions are generally unanswerable, how to think about the future self, wisdom in daily life, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and book and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Wu Kyung An. Hi, my name is Wu Kyung An, and um, I know it's a very difficult name for um, native English speakers uh, to pronounce. Uh, and it's Wu Kyung. Um, and um, I thought about changing my name into an American name when I first uh, joined the graduate school, but then my English was very not good at all at the time. Uh, not perfect either now, but. Um, and I thought it would be kind of funny to have a English American name uh, when my when I have a heavy accent and everything. But then, um, as I said in my book, uh, in the first chapter, there's an effect of fluency. So people think that the names that are easy to pronounce, uh, they tend to have a better values, and you know, and so on. So now I'm regretting uh, a lot that I didn't change my name to English <laughs> names. <laughs> well, I, I love it. I appreciate you helping me out uh, w- with that for for sure. And it's a pleasure to connect with you. I'm really grateful for your time. We're going to be discussing your book. Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better. I've really enjoyed going through the book. But before we get into it, we generally start with some sort of question around, you know, what got you started discerning your past? So you're a professor of psychology at at Yale University. How did you discern your way toward a career in, in psychology? So um, I wanted to go to medical school, uh, and in Korea, you start the medical school right after uh, high school, and but then I was strongly discouraged from many people that because of sexism at the time, uh, it would be extremely difficult for me to get residency and internship and uh, as a female uh, student. So then I thought, okay, then if it's not medical school, maybe I can do clinical psychology and be more like a therapist. So I majored in psychology. And back then, it was in 1980s. 
the dominant theory was still psychoanalysis. And when I learned about the Rorschach test, um, inkblot test where, you know, you say what you see, and then there is supposed to be assessment of your unconscious feeling. I could not believe how ridiculous that <laughs> test was. So I was completely turned off by that. And then, um, and then fortunately, uh, someone taught, uh, cognitive psychology, cognitive science and like, how we can actually measure what people think, you know, indirect uh, measures like reaction times and so on. And then there's also potential that there could be a computer programs that can be made, created to think like humans. And, uh, and that was just so, such a like eye opening experience. So I said, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> so I joined it. Yeah. So that's my story. <laughs> I love it. How would you? recommend someone else if um you know maybe one of your students or there's someone listening that is at this fork in the road and maybe dealing with one of these difficult decisions of down this particular career path or or that one what comes to mind so there are a lot of things that um i want to say on that um number one um many students apply for graduate schools just because they like the idea of being a professor uh, and, you know, doing research. And, um, but that is also another example of a fluency effect in that if they read, learn about some cool experiments, psychology experiments, they feel like it just, you know, we came up with that idea right away and the results were obtained as predicted, you know, because that's what we publish. <laughs> but then it, there are so many years and years of work that go into to publish, you know, one paper. It's not that easy at all. So I think the, the students really have to experience doing research uh, from scratch. And also they should really like uh, all this, you know, mechanical work uh, and not just the idea of being a, you know, professor just giving lectures about uh, cool psychology experiments. So that is uh, highly recommended. The other one is that they should not assume that passion is something that can be just discovered. It's not Mm -hmm. like, um, it's not like you have this already, you're born with this passion, you're bound to be something. And then it's just a matter of discovery. It's not like that. It's more like the passion and interest actually develop as you work on it, as you get better on it. So there's that side as well. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And um, I found it pretty interesting that this book basically started as this Mm -hmm. popular course that, that you were delivering. What how do you make sense of the popularity of this course on, on thinking? So um, everybody wants to think better, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, they, I think many of the students actually take the course thinking that they can out, outsmart everybody <laughs> in the room. Uh, no, that's not what I teach at all. But um, once they realize how limited, how irrational their thinking can be, they get really captivated by it. And I also use a lot of real-life examples, not just the you know abstract notions, not just probability theories, not the economic theories only. It's more like a really something they can do in every day. 
And they, the, one of the comments that I received the most uh, on my course evaluations at the end of the course is that this course teaches so many useful things. So, um, so that's what I'm actually, uh, th- that's what I actually um, focus on when I teach. Uh, I really handpick the experiments that, that are not obvious, something that they can use in the long run. And, and also it's, it's about critical thinking. I mean, critical thinking is not just criticizing someone else's um, theories or thoughts. <laughs> critical thinking is thinking about different aspects of the same phenomena. So it's kind of a skill course in that, in that sense. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. And I love this question that you asked many decades ago now to your advisor, can cognitive psychology make the world a better place? And it's this absolute yes. And I was wondering if you could maybe just broadly speaking, you know, what comes to mind around, you know, the ways cognitive psychology can help make the world a better place? At that time, and still, I kind of sometimes feel it this way, feel like some of the studies done are just a mental masturbation in a sense that they just do it for the sake of doing it and just publishing it. Um, and there's like no real, real life benefits. Uh, and that was the kind of skepticism that I had in graduate mm-hmm. school. So, uh, yeah. So, and so I wanted to go into more applied issues and there's a little bit of a prejudice against the applied studies in general they just want to study sometimes they just want to study like really really abstract notions and you know philosophical issues and rather than what can we do to um to remove the planning fallacy for instance for instance but um, I, I kind of like doing more uh, practical research, and that's what the tenure, uh, you know, allows me to do it. So, um, yeah, I hope I answered the question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. And uh, it comes through in the, in the book in the, in the way of this mm-hmm. practical everyday life, which is something we really strive to, to get at here on the on the podcast of its conversations about wisdom for for daily life, if you will. And I identified a few of the chapters that I hope we could spend a a bit of time on. And one is is chapter one. You've uh, discussed it a couple times, but, you know, what is this allure of uh, fluency? So um, it's pretty straightforward. If it sounds fluent, uh, they think it's also easy. And that's like a quick uh, rule of thumb. It's We call it heuristic that actually works most of the time. So if it, you know, you watch a YouTube of someone cooking uh, some simple pancake, you know, if it looks easy, then you think you can also do exactly the same thing. And if it looks very com- complicated, it requires a lot of different ingredients and many different steps, then then you can judge that it's it's not easy to do. So that worked. Um, that works most of the time in real life, but but then that's not always the case, of course. And as a result, we can uh, make wrong judgments. So, for instance, um, 
when I'm, uh, you know, preparing for this podcast, I would get, you know, your, some list of topics that we could talk about. And then when I just look at it, I just, oh yeah, yeah, sure. I know these topics. Of course I wrote about them, but then it does require it. I need to really think about exactly what the details are. Um, otherwise, otherwise you can be surprised by your own, uh, <laughs> failure to articulate what you thought you already knew. And there, there are many different examples of this kind of fluency effect. One of them was like, people think that, um, uh, shares, stock market, uh, the shares, if the, those names are easy to pronounce and they think it's gonna, you know, do perform also well in the future. So there's like a effect of pronounceability of the shares itself. And that's what I was talking about in terms of my name. Um, there is also the illusion that can be created by internet search. So if you search for certain things, you get the feedback right away. Uh, I mean, you know, you can always find out answers for something that always correct, but um, you find out answers and then they can create the illusion that you actually know more than you, you do. So that would be also another kind of a misjudgment. And it's, it's maybe something that's not new to us or maybe not overly surprising that we have this overconfidence. Um, I think there is something in the book that, Many people have heard that, uh, you know, over 90% of people rate themselves as a as above average drivers and things like that. What do we do about this in, in daily life, this tendency to have an, an overconfidence, to put it simply? Right. So most people say that, yeah, of course, I can be wrong. Uh, you know, I could be overconfident. But that in itself tends to be underestimation of their <laughs> overconfidence. It is a lot more than that. So, uh, for example, I'm just making self-deprecating joke. Professors, uh, about like 80% or 90% of the professors think that their teaching ability is above average. The math does not work at <laughs> yeah. all, right? And the professors, they should be smart people, but that's what they think. Um, so um, what are we doing with... So first of all, I wanted to really, really show that the overconfidence is actually deeper than we we might assume. And number two is to really understand where this overconfidence comes from. So it's not that it's because we are stupid or we are crazy or we are like narcissistic. narcissistic. It's not any of those. It's just that that's how our cognition has evolved. And there were good reasons why we have evolved to be that way. So in terms of affluency, as I mentioned, uh, if it looks easy, then it is most of the time it is easy. So, and it is a great cues to use in everyday life because uh, we need to decide whether you want to start driving and does it feel easy to you? Then you go driving. If it does not feel like it, then you don't go, uh, go on driving. So, so it works pretty well. So it's not that we are really dumb or stupid that, that we make these, uh, you know, wrong judgments. So that helps 
to understand uh, and also accommodate other people's errors, thinking errors as well. So if someone doesn't agree with us, that's not necessarily, that that's not necessarily mean that the person is crazy or just, uh, you know, not intelligent. So it, there are good reasons behind it. So we can respect the differences between people as well as a result. And if you understand where they come from, and we can also understand how difficult it is to, to change it. So if the fluency effect has adaptive values, then of course it's very difficult to get rid of it. So we could be more humbled, uh, and then, and then we might want to um, come up with more actionable strategies to, to remedy those errors. Thinking just as a curiosity question, kind of going through this particular chapter and observing my myself and reflecting on my own, you know, overconfidence at times. But I, I've heard you mention on a on another podcast of um, imposter syndrome. So it is strange that it's like, and and I can relate of on one hand an overconfidence. While at the same time, maybe there's an imposter syndrome type of thing happening at the same same time. How do we make sense of that? <laughs> no, no, no. It is, you know, maintaining uh, imposter syndrome is actually a type of overconfidence. Yeah. Because I'm overly confident that my hypothesis about imposter syndrome is correct. <laughs> Does yeah. it make sense? <laughs> So, because I'm correct about it, I'm interpreting interpreting everything uh, uh, with that uh, with that mindset. Um, so, so which is overconfidence does not mean that just being always like arrogant. Uh, uh, it, it's more like drawing a conclusion uh, based on. Not enough data, not enough real, real, true reality. It's something that's that's wrong that deviates from the reality. That could that's all overconfidence. Mm. Yeah. And does that connect with maybe something you talk about towards the end of the book? Of we don't necessarily like this uncertainty thing, and that's a, a topic that's come up in a number of episodes of how do we maybe get more comfortable in terms of uncertainty. But is there a connection there that it's it's just too uncomfortable to be in this unknown? So we have to like plug in some confidence, connect the dots, if you will? Yeah, um, I think, um, well, there, so there are eight chapters in the book because it's really hard to pinpoint one reason why we have overconfidence because it totally depends on what kind of overconfidence we're talking yeah. about. So in case of um, uncertainty the, in the last chapter that you talked about, that was about the, the future, uh, right? Uh, that was uh, when, when you have a choice between taking $400 now versus $450 now at the end of this month then most people choose $400 right now, even though it would be definitely better to wait for another month and get the $450, even considering inflation or, you know, any kind of investment <laughs> options or not, anything. So, and one of the reasons why we do that is we have this fear of uncertainty. 
who knows what might happen um, within a month. You know, I might die or the person who offered their money might just disappear. You know, there might be nuclear war. Who knows? Uh, but all these are very extremely, extremely low probabilities. And um, it's essentially zero. And so rationally speaking, it's much better to to just uh, wait another month uh, and for the higher values. Um, but, um, but we have this, like, uh, uh, we want to kind of, a control, we have a tendency to want to control the environment. You know, some people say that the depression is actually essentially a feeling of uh, not being able to control your environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we, we want to control, we would like to do that. And so as a result, we want to eliminate uncertainty as much as Mm. possible. Um, and that kind of desire can backfire to the point that we end up making irrational decisions about the future. Mm. Yeah. So interesting. And maybe connected to that in this uh, first chapter, you you touch on optimism and maybe differentiate between realistic and blind optimism. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah. So um, optimism is actually a very adaptive. It has a, a, a adaptive values. We all know we are going to die. So. If we are not optimistic, then what's the point of doing anything, right? <laughs> it's going to all end. Yeah. So we have to believe in the, in the future and optimistic that, uh, so, uh, so optimism has adaptive values, but then, you know, being overly optimistic, right? Just everything will be fine. That would be a blind uh, optimism. Just denying all the problems, that would be um, blind optimism. But what, I, what I'm trying to say in the book is that, uh, in short, um, that we need to make judgments based on data, large data and facts. And that would give the most realistic optimism that we can have about the And another thing I found interesting is you touch on this illusion of knowledge that we have explains why some of these uh, conspiracy theories are so persistent. And conspiracy theories have maybe probably existed throughout human history, but it's something that comes up, um, you know, often in modern culture today. Yes, exactly. So um, conspiracy, this actually follows very well with just the conversation we had, which is, um, this is not in the book, but I just read uh, that uh, people have developed conspiracy theory because of anxiety. And uh, they fall for it because conspiracy theory gives like a coherent uh, story about what's going on. And that's a lot more appealing than gap in the knowledge, mm. right? Because if we don't know uh, why, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy got uh, assassinated, right? Then that's a gap in the, uh, the knowledge, and that gives like anxiety, uncertainty. So if someone comes up with the plausible explanations for why he was assassinated, then it's very, it's a very appealing uh, theory. So people tend to fall for it 
And after they endorse the conspiracy theory, they, their anxiety level actually goes down mm. as well. So that's another example of the fluency effect in that any story theory that kind of makes it look like, oh, yeah, that's pretty plausible. That's a fluent process. Now I can, it makes sense. Then people also fall, uh, you know, get sucked into the conspiracy theory. Yeah. How do you make sense of, um, you know, like when it, when it comes to maybe, um, conspiracy theory, for example, there can really be a strong attachment. Like you say, this, um, you know, anxiety, maybe, uh, I, I think of, um, Jonathan Haidt's metaphor of the rider and the elephant, you know, the elephant is strong. Um, and you know, maybe other things, not so much. It's, you know, easier for us to, to let go of this, uh, you know, illusion of knowledge, but with some of these things where it's, you know, connected with this strong elephant, how do you, Loosen your grip to bring, you know, maybe a balance between reason and passion in there. It is hard. Uh, it's almost like changing one's religion, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it is It is extremely hard. And there probably is a reason why they fall for this conspiracy theory. I mean, and the reason is embedded in the person's entire uh, history, entire mm. life. So... Um, and that is also human nature. I mean, we always uh, interpret the, the world based on what we have experienced, what we believe, what we know. And as a result, we are, uh, you know, almost like destined to have a biased interpretations about everything. Uh, so I have a story about, you know, I thought the yellow traffic light was really yellow. I saw it as a truly yellow, bright, lemony yellow until my four-year-old son pointed out that that's, it's actually orange. Um, yeah. And it was just remarkable that I thought, how could I have seen it as a truly yellow color? And because it's because people call it yellow traffic light. And I actually saw it as a yellow rather than orange. Um, and just like that, um, I mean, yellow traffic light is, there's no really stake. I mean, I can change my mind about that readily, but if your entire life, the, you know, the meaning of your life depends on it, it, it's, it would be extremely difficult. So again, in this case, I think, it's better just to kind of almost like a give up on changing the person's entire uh, theories um, and then just respect them. Okay, I can see where you might be coming from and or maybe I don't even understand where why you believe that. But at the same time, it just respect that. Okay, that's how you, you live your life. And rather than trying to change the views, I think it's much better to figure out what the problems are because of the disagreement, what the specific problems we have at hand and try to um, resolve the conflict rather than trying to change the other people's uh, views. That might be a wiser (laughs) approach. Yeah. And the next one that I I identified is uh, the challenge of causal attribution, which is maybe connected to some of that, but could you, unpack that um generally speaking so 
there are at least two problems with the causal reasoning. We think that um, when something bad happens or even something good happens, we we kind of guess what the cause is. So, for instance, if the um, whole family had a stomach flu, you might have some theories about uh, what food might have caused it. Uh, so let's say it might have been the some uh, food that you had at a restaurant. And then... But then that's not for sure, right? Even though the entire family members had it at the same time, it could be the food that they each had at different restaurants as well. There's no way you can go back in time and figure out what was the cause. And the other challenge in the causal reasoning is that um, there are always multiple causes. They're all always interacting. So to pick out what was the cause, what was the one that needs to be blamed, that's a totally different game. And that can totally depend on the perspectives of the people or what they are trying to control as a uh, result of this causal reasoning and so on. So those those are, it's, and people seem to have a tendency to think that causal reasoning is easy because we always do it, but that it's knowing you actually carefully examine it. It's not that easy at all. I love this chapter. You write in here and you're you're basically just saying it there, but you write, strictly speaking, no why question is answerable. Yep, that's true. Yep. You can never, never figure out what caused what. Yeah. (laughs) How do we get comfortable accepting that Because I would imagine there are people listening or you hear that the first time, no why question is answerable. And just like with that example, stomach flu and all sorts of examples, we are answering why questions left and right throughout our own life and making meaning and making sense with all sorts of things. So I guess maybe a specific question is, how might adopting that Maybe uh, coming to the realization that these why questions are not necessarily answerable. How does that connect with living a better life? Well, living a better life. Okay, we'll get there. Uh, but before that, let's talk about how how we even do the causal reasoning then, right? Um, and it's probabilistic information, right? So... If there, there are data, you know, we have observed that if people eat undercooked meat, for instance, they, they tend to have a stomach flu later on. And also, probabilistically speaking, if all family members who ate at the same restaurant have the stomach flu at the same time, the chance is pretty high that it came from the same cause rather than there are five different causes for the, each of the family members. So we use that kind of a uh, probability information implicitly. And also we use some other heuristics like uh, similarity, for instance. So if, uh, if you, if, if it's a, a small effect then in, you know, in size, then we think that the cause of that effect was also kind of a small in intensity and so on. So we kind of, we pick the cause, you know, based on that kind of uh, similarities between the intensity and the size magnitude of the the events. And so 
And also we tend to blame more on the, the events that happened right before that rather than the remote ones. Uh, so there are all this, you know, temporal probabilistic or, you know, this kind of information that we just automatically use. Uh, but at the same time, uh, because we use this heuristics, we can also go wrong again. So, for example, if you find out that a student um, did really well on an exam because she worked on that exam like for like two weeks, she was worked really, really hard to work on the exam, then we also have a heuristic. Um, we tend to discount the other alternative explanations. Maybe she worked hard, but she might be also extremely smart as well. But just, you know, just if you see someone working, putting a lot of efforts into something, we have a tendency to discount that that person also has a great talent uh, for that. So, and but that's not warranted at all. So if, I mean, the going back to the living better life, I think the whole, the, the, the bottom line here is always, Think that you can be wrong, um, and but that does not mean that we have to be always like paranoid and anxious about that. You know, oh yeah, I could be wrong. It's not like that. But just being open minded about about your conclusions and be ready to accept the uh, alternative possible uh, interpretations. It seems like in my experience that we can spend so much time trying to solve some sort of why this happened type of thing. And like, as you've mentioned, it's probably an interconnected thing and maybe seven or eight different things. And maybe there are some things that you can do and maybe you can narrow it it down. But then like, what is that? solving like is is that time of this investigation thing maybe better suited you know moving forward i guess if you will exactly so going back to my imposter syndrome i could analyze why i have uh, imposter syndrome it could be because of the the way my uh, mom uh Brought, uh, you know, treated me when I was young. It could be the general sexism in in Korean society at the time, or uh, or maybe I just have the the personality trait. Maybe I was just born to be like skeptical about everything, and so there are multiple possible reasons. And so when I can't do something because of my imposter syndrome, right? I might ask myself, why me? Why, why am I this way? And I can just, you know, spend, as you say, I can um, spend like hours and hours, like sleepless nights thinking about why am I this way, uh, which is not constructive approach at all because there's nothing I can do about it. I cannot change my past at all. I cannot change the way I was brought up. Um, and so that's, what happens when you ruminate like that is that you are not, you can't really solve the problems at hand because first of all, you are in a bad mood. It depresses you. And um, 
you are focusing only on the things that you can't change at all. So it's better try to distract yourself. So meditation is a great approach for this, but distract yourself and stop that thoughts, that ruminating thoughts, and just focus on how to solve the problems. So instead of asking why questions, it could be a lot more useful to ask the question of how am I going to solve this problem? Mm. I love that. And I have a, a note here for another curiosity question. You, you mentioned there, you know, overthinking, rumination, things like that. How does one differentiate maybe these negative things like rumination from, say, contemplation or curiosity? How does one know if they're on this side or that? I know. I always made <laughs> up, you know, <laughs> myself as well. Am I ruminating or am I trying to solve the problems <laughs> now? <laughs> right? Because uh, I would like to think that I'm actually trying to solve the problem. I'm not ruminating, but it is, it is, it is hard, but, um, at least keeping in mind that I could be ruminating, right? That can be, that can be a good, great, you know, step forward. Um, because until I heard about the research about the how rumination actually caused depression for even for people who are not really truly depressed, I did not even know that uh, that there is such a thing as a rumination or how the negative effects of the rumination. So at least being aware of that would be helpful. The other thing is kind of a try to objectify your situation. So you can um, call, uh, instead of saying, why did I do this? Or how am I going to do this? Instead of that, you can call yourself using your own name, like as if you, you are third persons and say, what would Wu Kyung uh, do uh, tomorrow then? Or why did Wu Kyung do this? What mistake did she make? Mm. Right? Calling it in the third person term also um, helps you to step uh, out of the situation because rumination happens when you're too immersed in the situation. So distancing yourself and looking at the whole situation, it helps to think about, oh, it could be this rather than just what I was thinking. So it broadens your perspectives. So that's another great thing to do. I love it. And I find it a challenging thing to do. But in a way, some of these things can be really fun that I think the more you get into them, is that how your students, basically, I'm assuming that connects with some of the popularity is it's, it's fun to observe yourself and, you know, and try to put these into practice. Yes, yes. So what I do is that the very first assignment of the course is they have to, uh, make judgments on a number of uh, tasks that are used in a classic psychology experiments. And I do that as a very first assignment because I don't want students to overthink. They have to give the intuitive judgments. And um, so, and then, so I collect all these data from that class. And then as we go on, I present those, some of the data and say, this is what you guys said. <laughs> you cannot deny that you would not have done it. Right? This is what you did. And people just laugh and like, oh, I cannot believe <laughs> we did that. <laughs> so it becomes really fun. Yeah. 
And also people, yeah, people also volunteer, uh, you know, shamelessly. They just say we play some kind of a communication game in class and uh, they, they think it's obvious what, what they're trying to convey is real, really obvious, but people just don't get it at <laughs> all. So, uh, yeah, that kind of thing. They, it's, it's very humbling experience, but at the same time, it's in an environment that's not threatening at all. Mm. So we are all this way. So yeah, that's why I don't mind talking about my own imposter <laughs> syndrome also. I love it. Yeah. Well, I think my favorite chapter was the, the final chapter, which is titled The Trouble with Delayed Gratification. And you, you cover quite a bit of ground in this chapter. Could you speak a bit about this idea of um, how our present self misunderstands our, our future self? Okay, now I'm experiencing fluency. <laughs> what did I say in that chapter? <laughs> it sounds familiar. Um, present self. Um, so there are many, many things that come to my mind. Um, so the future, so it's like that. Um you know, we have a tendency to procrastinate uh, tasks that we don't like. And um, because if the pain of doing that task right now feels a lot worse than the pain that I will, my future self will experience in the, in the future, which is complete illusion when you think about it. It's exactly the same task. It should not matter whether it's now or yeah. the future. But we, ha- yeah, it's it's remarkable how we do that. It just feels uh, psychologically distant, uh, and uh, so we end up just procrastinating. Oh yeah, I, I'll do it tomorrow. You know, it's it will be less painful. Um, and same uh, with the reward, as I talked about. So the you know money right now feels a lot valuable than money in the future. And um, these things can be, uh, I don't think it can be completely eliminated, but it can be at least reduced by thinking about specific events happening in the future. So um, before I commit to any kind of a podcast interviews and so on, if it's like several months from now, it's easier, much easier to agree on it. Oh yeah, that sounds fun. You know, why not? And then, and then I always have to remind myself, okay, what is happening two months from now? I look at my calendar and I have these courses to teach. I already agreed on these lectures and so on. And, and then I really, really think about the typical day of that week. And then at that point, can I really commit to this uh, podcast, for instance? So, um, that kind of a experience, uh, the, the um, thinking about specific future events actually help you to dis- less discount the future pain or future uh, reward. I think it's so fascinating. Um, and this, this came up in a, in a previous conversation a few weeks ago that'll, that'll be out when, uh, the listeners will be listening to this as well. It, it really connects with me of this, this idea of this, this person that is you 20 years from now or, you know, one year from now almost feeling like a stranger or, you know, just feeling so distant. How do you think about connecting or, you know, bringing these, 
these events that are in the future, you know, closer to us in a, in a way. Um, so another mistake that people make is that they don't realize that you will change in the future. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's remarkable. We get that feedback all the time. You know, I, um, when I have to, so tonight I also have to give uh, some, um, uh, dinner with the, with the students. And I, yeah, three months from now, I, uh, three months ago, I said, yeah, sure, I will do it. And then I now, you know, think that what was I thinking back then <laughs> when I agreed to do that one? Um, and, um, there's, um, and, you know, because now my situation has changed quite a bit from that time on. So we could make those uh, mistakes because we don't really quite understand who we will be in the future. But, you know, that's in some sense, that's part of the fun <laughs> <laughs> of living yeah. a life, right? If you can completely predict everything in the future, it's like, you know, seeing the spoiler, you know, <laughs> of the movie, right? Uh, so that's not good. But, um, um, I kind of want to uh, talk about the wisdom, which is that uh, one of the very important components of, be of being wise is understand that the world will change. Mm. Uh, things, situations will change. And uh, accepting that and kind of, uh, you know, be okay with it. I think that that's very important. And the world could be yourself as well. Yeah, yeah. it is. And like you say, it is a, a beautiful thing even though maybe we desire some sort of certainty in our, in our mind, we don't necessarily want a pre-scripted rerun, you know, that the, the uncertainty, if we can maybe remind ourselves that that's where a bit of the awe and the, and the wonder and, and joy, you know, also come into play. You, you mentioned something in earlier in terms of language of that, the light how, you know, we call it yellow mm -hmm. and it's like, it looks yellow. And in this previous conversation, it was, it was with um, Dean Rickles. He's the author of um, the book, Life is Short. But he cites some of the work from this uh, British philosopher, David uh, Parfit, who I'm not super familiar with. But interesting, he kind of points to the language piece of it as being something to be mindful of. He suggests, and I mean, he's done a, a lot of work on this future self type of stuff. You know, he says, maybe, you know, maybe perhaps we shouldn't say future self and we should start saying me or future you. So, you know, something where we uh, become uh, connected to this, you know, person that is, that is in the, in the, in the future, I guess, if, if you will. Uh, but it's really interesting. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> point. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I totally see what you're saying. Uh, that the future me isn't that actually that distant. It's actually, after all, yeah. it's me. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> we generally wrap up with this question: How do you define or or think about wisdom? And um, you know, take as long as long as you like with it and maybe picture some student corner corners you and, you know, poses this this question to you. You know, how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life? So 
I think there are at least two things I want to underscore. Um, Number one is exactly what we talked about, overconfidence. So intellectual humility is is a really important component of wisdom, that I can be wrong, uh, or it's not just me. Everybody can be wrong, right? There is a room for errors. I think that kind of mindset, um, if it's if it's done in a healthy way, could be actually very wise. It's it's a very wise thing to do. The other one is um, what was it that I was gonna say? Oh yes, the other one was um, being able to take multiple perspectives of different people that I can see it this way, but the other person can see it the, the other way. That's why some, sometimes self-distancing can be helpful because you are kind of looking at your situation from the drone's perspective. And then you can now say, oh yeah, that person could have seen me that way. Even though I did not mean to say that, uh, you know, I can see that how he might have heard it that way. That would be also a very important uh, component of uh, wisdom. Well, I love it. I, I appreciate it. And let me ask a, a follow-up, if I could, in, in reference to that number one, the intellectual humility, something that was maybe running in the in the background as I was reading your book and in this conversation of maybe something like the philosopher Montaigne supposedly lived by this mantra, what do I know? And he had it written everywhere and constantly maybe, you know, re- repeated this um, to himself. And you said, you know, intellectual humility in a healthy way. Could you elaborate a bit, you know, of maybe does that sound like something that would be in, in an unhealthy category? Or is there something that comes to mind of, you know, what would make intellectual humility to an unhealthy extreme? So the unhealthy version would be the imposter syndrome, right? I don't know anything. Uh, They can be paralyzed as a result. Uh, I don't deserve to do this and I don't deserve to be here. Uh, That would be, uh, that would be a, you know, that could belong to a category of a mental disorder. Um, But just, just being humble about your knowledge, your conclusion and just being ready to be ready to listen to a different version, that would be, that would be actually very wise. And that can be a very healthy thing too, because you'll be less shocked <laughs> if you're ready to, ready to be wrong. Right. Um, your ego would not be that, you know, traumatized. <laughs> yeah. So in that sense, it, there can be a lot of healthy things. Like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I was wrong about that. You know, just laugh at yourself and don't take yourself too seriously. I, you know, this, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I heard that the uh, one of the reasons for uh, anxiety disorder is that they take themselves too seriously. <laughs> yeah, so I think that you know, just being able to laugh at yourself, I think that's that's can be a very healthy uh, thing to do. Yeah, beautiful. I love it. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much again for for taking the time to connect. And again, we've been discussing your book, Thinking 101, How to Reason Better to Live Better. I really enjoyed the book and highly recommend it to the listeners. Is there anything we didn't touch on that we should have? 
Um, no, I think your your last part was the best one. They they should read it. <laughs> <laughs> There are many many things that we didn't cover in the from the book. Um, and thank you so much for having me. This was really fun to think about wisdom and you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Um, I really liked it. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. It's been a pleasure. Well, let me let me try this pronunciation of, of your name here, Doctor <laughs> Wu Kyung An. Thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes, our daily email newsletter, and reading in the good life, a free weekly meetup. Until next time, be wise and be well.